If we recorded this conversation, that we would be on our way to like podcast gold. Welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law. The Trump administration meets the Pottery Barn rule, podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on October 13th, 2017. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, and I'm joined by my co-host, who has vowed not to sleep until after the 2020 California primary. His name is... Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. Frank, we need to thank a generous new patron, Robin. Well, Welcome to the team, Robin. Much appreciated. Yes, thanks so much, Robin. Yeah. So, Frank, we've been off the air for a couple of weeks. Uh, Rumours were swirling, I have to tell you. Had Twill been banned by Twitter or something? (laughs) Maybe we'd been selling ads for the Russians. Uh, Who knows? Had we been purchased? Was this an acquihire? Soon to be rebranded as an alphabet Twill or something. But alas, no, there are far simpler, more mundane reasons. For me, it's been travel. I was in Norway for a meeting of the European Association of Health Lawyers. It's a bit like health law teachers in the States, but they only meet every other year, which actually doesn't sound like a terrible idea, does it? And I had a great time. Met some old friends, particularly my friend from Belgium, Jean Herveg, who's a a wonderful data protection lawyer, and plenty of others, and super sessions that I really enjoyed, and a couple of substantive observations. First of all, to me, thought a surprising amount of debate about access and healthcare rights, which suggested that when we look over the Atlantic at the EU developed countries, maybe this sort of straightforward binary between universality and the US system is not particularly accurate. It should be more nuanced. The Iron Triangle, after all, applies everywhere. And the recession hit hard in the EU and uh, led some systems to make some difficult choices that have now led to these policy debates there. Second observation, although you and I, Frank, and certainly anyone involved in data protection has been monitoring the GDPR for some time and and reading, writing about it. It's remarkably big news in Europe. Um, We did a session on a sort of a workshop on uh, data protection, including comparative data protection, and we got a big crowd. It it really is a a huge topic there uh, with the various new pieces that the GDPR builds in on top of the old directive. And then finally, uh, again, not a massive surprise because it's it's been known to be a big issue in Europe for a while, biobanking. Biobanking is a very hot topic there at the moment. Uh, everything you would expect, the consent, the data protection pieces, you know, the tissue issues and so on that are still uh, extremely complex. And by the way, talking of, of that, did I read that the common rule is still frozen? Oh, man, <laughs> there's a lot going on with the common rule. Yeah, really? So it, I mean, it's just the... I mean, what's strange to me is I was actually at a, uh, and this also helps explain our sort of off-air or our mini hiatus, I guess, is, you know, I was doing this uh, event at Washington University School of Law with the uh, newly formed Institute for Policy and Law and Medicine. At, uh, it was the launch with the med school and the law school there. And um, there were some very interesting colloquies between uh, folks with IRB, folks who are running research programs, other areas uh, with respect to a lot of uncertainty about the future direction, uh, both uh, in terms of biobanking and in terms of other data issues as a result of um, common rule uncertainty and, you know, just other other uncertainty that, you know, we've seen 
seen uh, highlighted in the work of Jessica Roberts and, and others. So yeah, yeah, that's uh, uh, it's. <laughs> I'm actually going to be having a meeting this week to discuss that with some folks. So yeah. Well, I actually uh, got a uh, a review of your performance at WashU. Oh really? Yes, because after Norway last weekend, I headed off to San Diego um, to work with friend of the pod Mark Rothstein uh, on a grant that he and John Wilbank of Sage um, are the PIs on. Um, it's a, a project to looking at citizen science and mobile apps and so uh, there there was some overlap with the wash you attendees and so i I got to hear that you were amazing. Oh, well, that's very kind. <laughs> I will say that I, I was really impressed by, I heard a little bit about that project as well uh, at uh, WashU and really was excited about some of the potential there. So that's great. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, tremendous fun. The workshop was keynoted by Eric Topol. That's probably as much as I can say under the Chatham House rules that applied, except that it was a really interesting and thoughtful couple of days. And uh, I, I met uh, some really neat people, some of whom will be appearing on future twills excellent well i i guess it would be nice to think that while we were away frank nothing really happened mm. um but oh my it's almost it, it's no longer just daily it's almost hourly isn't yes. it so let's try and break it down a little bit since we've been away well we lost hhs secretary price in a cloud of expensive jet fuel <laughs> and can i add uh, just a wonderful detail on this that you know from twitter which is that apparently someone was gossiping on twitter that the breaking point for trump with respect to price wasn't really about the planes because you can look at manukin and some of these other folks they're still around and they were doing some pretty expensive flying it was that at a critical night uh with respect to one of those ahca or other skinny repeal or something he was at horse feathers so this was a you know if you were in horse feathers that <laughs> night rather than actually going and whipping and law, uh, going after the senators uh forget it so that's that's the uh the bar i guess that is the bar it it links into uh, the other thing that we missed of course which is while we we're away we had september 30th so that means any repeal and replace fire reconciliation during this budget year has disappeared. But just as we were sort of breathing something of a sigh of relief um, as to the ACA's survival, we also knew that thereafter, as has been the case since uh, the beginning of the year, that our healthcare system was going to be under the stewardship of those who are, let's face it, fundamentally opposed to it. And that leads us to the sabotage rhetoric, or I think I prefer Andy Slavitt's phrase, synthetic repeal. Yes, I'm actually doing a uh, blog post on that right now. Uh, so yes, <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good phrase. So let's try and break that down. There are many folks who have done this way better and in more detail, and we'll put the references to them in the, the show notes. But I think I have like six issues that fit into the synthetic repeal narrative. First of all, uh, chip renewal has been delayed, um, despite everyone's uh, suggestion that it would be okay. Um, the delay was apparently after the GOP tried to insert some Medicaid offsets. Talking of those kinds of offsets uh, leads us into the budget. And the question, will the first major Trump budget do what repeal and 
and replace failed to do uh, by simply slashing funding for Medicaid and Medicare. Some argue that we'll see reconciliation uh, be brought back to include some repeal and replace. But another group seems to suggest that the politics of healthcare would be so serious a challenge to any kind of tax reform unity that it's far too dangerous to include that uh, in the tax reform proposals. So repeal and replace may well be dead uh, for a little while. Uh, My second bullet point, the advertising and marketing budget cuts that HHS have uh, announced, which is going to make it harder to get a good risk pool signing up for the marketplaces. And then, of course, there's the rather odd timing, um, as people have noted, of these maintenance periods, while the, which are going to bring down the federal site, uh, healthcare.gov, for maintenance, just when it seemed that we needed it. Third, there was the reported call from Trump to Seema Verma about the Iowa 1332 waiver, because apparently the the health policy and chief expert uh, saw a Wall Street Journal that suggested that the Iowa waiver might actually successfully stabilize the Iowa market. And if you know anything about the Iowa market, it's it's an absolute mess. They have a horrible risk pool uh, there. Um, so the, the, the Iowa waiver request was essentially to go to a single uh, silver plan, which used different age and income benefits from the ACA. So that the question with regard to it was less about the 1332 guardrails, which it probably doesn't meet. Uh, but rather that it was pretty much an ACA rewrite. So whether that would ever be approved, we're not sure anyway. Continuing the narrative, number four, the contraceptive mandate interim final rule. This basically kills the preventative services contraceptive no cost sharing mandate that we had in the ACA. The interim rule distinguishes between employers who can leverage religious objections and a smaller cohort that can make moral objections. But in the rule, there is the opportunity for folks to talk about that, and maybe those two cohorts will be merged uh, later in the process. So what is this about? Uh, well, it's the end game for the Obama administration's attempt to thread a camel through the eye of a needle. The ACA exempted religious employers, and then the Obama administration gave a regulatory accommodation for nonprofit religious organizations with regard to the contraceptive mandate. But that almost have inevitably led to Hobby Lobby and the successful RIFRA challenge by nonprofit employers with religious beliefs. And then, of course, we had the Zubik Circus, which was basically a an attempted Supreme Court case about how hard it was to fill out a simple form. So it looks like that's now reached the end. There are some interesting APA and constitutional questions raised by the interim final rule. So, for example, Nick Bagley, and we'll uh, link this in the show notes, questioned why would you use an interim final rule for this? The APA requires notice and comment unless there's good cause. And it's a really thin argument, I think, here that there is good cause to use any process other than notice and comment. So it's almost inevitable, uh, see below, that we're going to have a challenge. Um, And I think Bagley's conclusion was that we will 
simply see the notice and comment version of this being worked on while the legal challenges take place. Indeed, we already have California, Washington, Massachusetts, and the ACLU filing suit. Though the grounds, the constitutional grounds are kind of interesting. First Amendment and Fifth Amendment equal protection. So a lot of interesting stuff uh, that will uh, keep us busy there. Bullet five in our sabotage narrative, the new executive order um, on associations and short-term limited duration insurance. This has perhaps been somewhat overblown because obviously it's just an executive order and the regulations on this are months away. There's going to be so much wrangling as to how broadly to define eligible associations while not falling afoul of ERISA. The policy issues are much starker. Um, These cheaper policies with lower actuarial value or reduced benefits are likely to siphon off young, healthy people from small group or exchange risk pools, essentially dooming the exchanges. As to what these short-term limited duration policies, I mean, they're currently unregulated by the ACA, but it seems hard to see exactly how they can be expanded without some serious uh, legal challenges. Probably the nerdiest but most fascinating aspects of this executive order are the ERISA issues regarding the association plans. I am simply not qualified to comment on this other than to say Tim Jost has, even by his exalted standards, an amazing health affairs blog post on the ERISA issues. And we will put that in the show notes and go there and be amazed. And then finally, in this long and rather tedious uh, narrative, Frank, we just heard today uh, or late last night um, that uh, the Trump administration is going to bring an end to uh, CSRs, cost sharing reduction or payments that uh, go to insurance companies. Uh, What's going to be the effect of that? Well, we'll probably see some bare counties. Uh, We've been lucky so far this year, but this is likely to expose a few counties. But the sensible folks suggest that many insurers will already have priced this in for 2018 because of signals from the administration and the general instability uh, that has um, surrounded Trump's attitude to CSRs. What Margot Sanger Katz terms the uncertainty tax uh, may well have been priced in, so we may not see a major disruption yet. Uh, One point to remind people on this is that because of premium subsidies, the increases in price in exchange silver policies that we'll see will be borne by the federal government. So this is solely driven by spite and not by any kind of sound financial management. Back in August, the CBO estimated that terminating CSR payments would increase premiums by 20% and increase the federal deficit by $194 billion from 2017 through 2026. Uh, Recall also that this summer, 16 states were allowed to intervene in House versus Price, uh, which now puts them in a pretty good position to ask for injunctive relief. 
Plus, uh, later today, we heard that 15 states in Washington, D.C. are signing on to a new lawsuit, which will be filed in California very shortly. So it's an extraordinary series of developments, uh, whether you like the sabotage rhetoric or uh, are happy uh, with synthetic uh, repeal. But as of today, those seem to be the pieces that are in play. Yes, that is really a sweeping and incredibly helpful overview, Nick. And I don't have a ton to add, but I've just been trying to polish off way too many articles the past couple of weeks. But And also, it's just too demoralizing to really try to keep up with every um, twist and turn at some points. Um, but what yeah, I will say yeah. is that just to try to pull back and see the big picture now. It's very hard to see the ongoing vitality of any argument on the Democratic side for the need for a bipartisan cooperation in terms of future exchange stabilization or copper plans, as Tim Kaine likes to you know, tout, or other um, approaches in the future, say, even saving Obamacare. Um, just because, just as the insurers now are starting to say, and I think we're going to see the results of this relatively shortly, that the they don't think the federal government is a good faith partner uh, in terms of providing health care. And, you know, certainly the word on the street uh, among, you know, health policy experts right now and people in the field is chaos. People just don't know what's going on. They don't know if, for example, Dan Hemmel's proposal that states pick up the slack and pay out some of the CSRs will actually get done. And if states could then step into the shoes and go to the Court of Federal Claims to claim this money. The other thing, you know, all of the legal analysis is that, oh, of course the money's going to come back. But on the other hand, the Court of Federal Claims, I believe, now has six vacancies uh, out of the 10 judges. Three of those um, were three recent Trump appointees, I believe, were approved by the Senate. I'm not certain of that, but I think that, you know, the Trump appointees may be coming fast and furious there. One of those is called uh, Judge Justice Kennedy, a judicial prostitute. Another one of them, uh, you know, has similar uh, sort of uh, a vibe, you know, in terms of if you look at his his nine years of legal practice, which is not that much for someone going to the Court of Federal Claims. So the bottom line here is that I just they wanted to say, and I, I got lost in a dependent clause there, very sorry, but just as the insurers are um, not feeling that the federal government is a uh, good faith partner in trying to insure the people on the exchanges, similarly, it's very hard for uh, Democrats in the future to think of Republicans as a good faith partner with respect to anything that gets hammered out between now and 2018, 2020, etc., because we now have precedent for for outright sabotage of the act. And I think that that's one, this is sort of a Rubicon that's being crossed. And I, I see it similarly with respect to, you know, Angela Merkel's speech um, after, uh, to, I think it was a Bavarian uh, group after, you know, Trump had, had sort of uh, said some random rash things about Germany when she said, you know, we're going it alone. And so I think this is a real twilight for the technocrats in the um, sort of the the moderate moderates of all kinds and the sort of the, the right wing of the Democratic Party, because it's just very hard to see where we go from here when you have essentially a party that is rallying around Trump. It's not like this was just sort of magically done by one man. Uh, if we saw the signing ceremony this morning, some of the very biggest names, the Republican Party, the rising stars of the party are completely bought into this. And so, you know, this is a, a real watershed. And um, I think it's, you know, it's going to have a lot of ramifications far beyond the effects on particular insurance markets and the effects on the 1 million who are probably going to lose coverage 
and the brutal effects on the people who are on the exchanges that don't get any subsidies, um, you know, for the uh, premium increases. I mean, those are all terrible effects, but it just it goes even beyond the immediate terrible effects to very long lasting impact on what health policy and law and proposals for reform should look like in light of the current scenario. Yes, and who the included stakeholders should be. Maybe it's a it, it's been technocracy, but Obama made very clear to the insurance companies that they would be included this time around, whereas they were being excluded during Hillary Care. Medicaid expansion in particular uh, really increased revenues for healthcare providers, the big institutional providers, and actually encouraged much more um, uh, coordination and uh, and mergers and and so on and alliances between healthcare providers. And this reaction seems very much to be against the interests of both of those stakeholders, let alone, as you say, the poor folks are actually sick. But, you know, I want to throw in one uh, little little curveball here in terms of the narrative about insurers and the healthcare stakeholders. Because I have noticed, you know, in terms of uh, lots of tweets from Slava, Topher Spiro, um, other uh, folks trying to save the ACA that have sort of said, look, these plans... Everyone opposes them. All the state Medicaid directors, even the Republican states, um, even and, and the insurers, etc. But I have to say, I, I really feel like the insurers sort of brought this on themselves. Um, and again, we've discussed this previously, but I think it's worth reiterating at this juncture. And I also want to make an open invitation to anyone who listens to the show that wants to send me, talk with me about the insurer perspective and thinks I'm getting it wrong. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to talk with you. But when I look at, when I read the Jost post about the association health plans and the incredible level of complexity and the type of um, sort of bait and switch that can be accomplished via some of these association health plans where say employee the people who join sign up may say oh great I got health care but then they don't really realize that they may not be covered for that much I smell profit I smell tons of profit opportunities out of a fragmentation a divide and conquer incredible complexity and chaos in the individual insurance market um, and you know but I'd love to hear the 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 sort of analyses and on the other side. But I think that the insurers, if they're anything, they the private insurers know how to capitalize on disruption, uh, radical changes in the nature in which uh, health coverage is provided. And so, you know, I, I don't know if we're going to see, um, I don't know exactly what's going to be uh, happening in terms of lobbying uh, the administration as it sort of, as this rulemaking happens. But one thing I certainly noticed over the past seven or eight months or so is there were Harry and Louise ads during uh, when Clinton tried to put together a plan back in, you know, 92, 93, 94. Um, I don't think there were that many Harry and Louise ads during any of the three or four Republican repeal efforts. Um, they're, they're lying back, they're lying in wait and I think, you know, quite busily crafting ways to take full advantage of the potential disruption of markets that will arise if this rulemaking process catalyzed by the executive order actually goes forward. And I guess in large part, both for insurers and healthcare providers, that kind of disruption and fragmentation of markets allows for differential pricing. And when you have the ability to price like that, there is profit. This week on Twill, we greet Michelle Mello, professor of law at Stanford Law School. She holds a joint appointment at the university's School of Medicine and the Department of Health Research and Policy. She is a prodigious and influential scholar whose work has been honored and or funded by the National Academy of Medicine 
Medicine, Academy Health, the Greenwall Fund, and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Uh, great welcome, Michelle. Thanks for having me. You have been ridiculously productive, as always, and we'd like to uh, attempt to uh, get through some of your new work. First of all, we've had um, a couple of uh, speakers on the pod talking about the Sunshine Act aspects of the Affordable Care Act. And uh, you had a really interesting piece in the Journal of General Internal Medicine, I think it was, on, I don't know, is it a mischaracterization of that piece to say that it was talking about an underreporting issue, or is it something more subtle than that? Well, uh, this work, which was led by Jenny Pham Cantor of the Penn Perelman School of Medicine, was looking at how common it is for physicians to receive payments from industry. And in a nutshell, what we found is that the usual method of measuring this really understates how many patients see doctors who take payments from drug companies. It always poses the question for me as to when I see work like this, had a great uh, chat with Rick Saver, who's done work on the Sunshine Act, as to, um, as to whether there's just a basic flaw in these sort of transparency laws and that they're sort of somewhat doomed, that either um, uh, there's a lack of reporting, and we've seen that with adverse event reporting and so on, or there is considerable confusion or usually informational asymmetry problems with regard to stakeholders such as the patients uh, understanding them. Yeah, something I've thought about a lot over the years because this has become a fashionable intervention in, in all kinds of areas of healthcare and public health because it allows us to avoid harder questions about the role of government um, and, and nurture the notion that empowered consumers will correct distortions in the market if they just have the right information. I, I guess I've become a sort of reluctant skeptic of that view, I, I would love to believe it's true, but the evidence just doesn't really support it. And so I, I guess where I'm at now is thinking about ways in which we might be able to shift our focus, if we're going to maintain this this interest in transparency-related strategies, shift our, shift our focus from consumers to prime recipients of this information to various kinds of learned intermediaries who have better incentives and ability to make use of that information to, um, to make choices in the market. Another new piece that uh, fascinated me in part because it was an issue I'd never even thought about at all. Uh, it was kind of like uh, reminding me of the first time I ever heard of ghost surgery. Um, uh, this issue of overlapping surgery that uh, sort of was first uh, exposed, I suppose is the, is the word, by a, a Boston Globe investigation back in, uh, in 2015. Um, what is overlapping? surgery and what's the difference between overlapping surgery and concurrent surgery? So overlapping surgery is where a an attending surgeon is running two rooms at the same time or sometimes three or four rooms while he is performing the so-called critical parts of an operation. Somebody else, typically a resident, a fellow, or sometimes a physician assistant is performing what the surgeon has classified as non-critical parts of the, of the other operation. Um, meanwhile, the surgeon is billing for both operations at the same time. Is there a, a reimbursement problem with Medicare or Medicaid? When overlapping surgery transmutes into what we would call concurrent surgery, there becomes a compliance issue. Concurrent surgery is when the surgeon is running two or more rooms and the critical portions of the operation, as the surgeon defines them, are occurring simultaneously. That you cannot bill CMS for um, if you're in a teaching hospital. 
that I think presents some ready questions about the safety of the practice. If these are parts of the operations that by definition are critical, they would seem to require a significant amount of expertise and experience. And that's Mm -hmm. one of the reasons why we have the Medicare rule. The question is whether there's a problem in the realm of overlapping surgery as distinct from critical uh, overlap. And if so, what is that? The paper we wrote this year in JAMA highlights that we don't know very much about this practice in terms of its outcomes for patients. The few studies that have been published don't establish that there's a heightened safety risk, but there are a lot of methodological reasons why they may have not found an effect. Um, And I guess the lawyer's question is, um, you know, even if that's true, do we have a problem because of lack of informed consent? If most people feel the way you did, Nick, and I think they do, that they are not aware that this goes on and it's not something that's discussed with them in the informed consent process, it's not even disclosed in the informed consent paperwork, um, is is that in and of itself a problem? Oh, and that, that's that's a nice link back, actually, to uh, the, the go surgery issue because the early cases on that did hold the, the non-performing surgeon uh, liable for lack of informed consent and the performing surgeon liable for lack of consent. Mm, mm-hmm. So, yes, I could see uh, that. But it, your article seems to go further and, uh, and talk uh, about uh, sort of broader issues of sort of trust and, and so on. Well, I think anytime you've got a deficiency of informed consent, as I believe is the case here, that raises some pretty profound issues about maintaining trust in the physician-patient relationship and just in the surgical profession generally. Um, so I, I think that is to be contended with. But I think there are also some broad issues about regulation that's raised by this practice, because right now, um, both by dint of the um, narrowness of the federal regulations and just by dint of professional practice, decisions about what constitute the so-called critical portions of the operation are devolved to individual surgeons in most institutions. So we are relying on the individual who stands to uh, receive enhanced revenue from a greater volume of operations to make uh, judgments about when he can spread himself thin in the operating room and when he can't. I believe there probably is a big range in terms of surgeons' ability to pull this off successfully, and that it probably depends a lot, not just on their skill and experience, but on the team they have supporting them and the infrastructure they have to do this safely. But the question for me, I guess, from a regulatory perspective is, is is this something we really want each surgeon deciding for himself? And if Mm. not, what is the appropriate level? level either within the profession or outside the regulation for the profession for this decision to be made. You would think that uh, the institutions would be getting involved in this, wouldn't you? You would, but I think the reality of it is um, that there are units of hospitals also that also are critically about maximizing volume, particularly yeah. maximizing volume of uh, lucrative procedures and surgeries. So they also are not unconflicted in trying to reach these judgments. Um, Both those units and the physicians that work in them, of course, are also driven by the mission of treating patients safely and with high quality care. And I'm not discounting that. I'm merely pointing out that when we have this kind of conflicting interest, it's often wise to bring in people that don't. And so um, my question is whether hospitals can effectively convene a multidisciplinary body that includes people within the hospital whose primary job it is to look out for patient safety uh, to make these decisions and remove them even from the level of surgery departments. Yeah. Be interesting to know what the patient advocates think. And- yes, and there are, you know, there are even within operative 
teams, there are folks who are in a position to serve as patient advocates. Anesthesiologists, for example, are yep. um, they are watch they're watching, they are watchful, and uh, they are have expressed concern about this practice. You know, being left alone in a room with a patient who's now under anesthesia for a prolonged period of time while everybody's waiting for the surgeon to come back. Um, and so they have institutions where they've expressed those concerns. They've really been, encountered a lot of pushback. Um, but that's exactly the type of person who has the skill and expertise to be able to make the call about what's safe and what's not, um, but is at a little bit farther distance from the financial incentives that make this so complicated for surgeons and surgery departments. Yeah, that's well stated. So, Michelle, I teach uh, healthcare quality and safety, uh, much more of a regulatory course uh, than the old common law malpractice course that we we were used to and it's not always a particularly sort of uh you know joy to the world kind of course because um, the malpractice system seems uh, pretty inept these days Uh, it's still incredibly inefficient as far as actually getting money to the injured persons in a timely manner it's not exactly one of our most successful models but there are some real sort of bright lights that i teach in that course and one of them is the CRP model, Communication and Resolution Programs, which seem, since their early beginnings, to have uh, some real traction these days. Not all of our listeners will be familiar with CRPs, so it'd be great to get a quick rundown on what they do or what they try and do, and then maybe to segue into, well, they sound good, what could possibly go wrong? Sure. Well, CRPs are a private dispute resolution process that has been implemented by a large number of hospitals, hospital systems, and their liability insurers. The twin goals are to improve patient safety through uh, more intensive analysis of things that go wrong in the hospital and to reduce liability costs by averting formal claims and lawsuits. The steps in the process are pretty straightforward in principle. When something goes wrong in the hospital that's unexpected, you report it to the institution, you disclose it to the patient. There is a rapid investigation if it is more than a de minimis level of severity. The patient is informed of the results of the investigation. And along with that explanation comes an apology. From there, the response becomes tailored depending on what the investigation found. If, as is often the case, the event is determined not to have been due to a standard of care violation, the apology is one of sympathy, and there's an effort to support the family, but there's no effort to uh, provide compensation. Uh, If, on the other hand, it is one of the minority of events that is due to medical error, the idea is to provide an apology of responsibility, um, indicate what will be done to prevent a recurrence, and proactively offer a compensation that is more or less comparable to how the case would be valued in the tort system. minus any inflation factor for attorney's fees. If the patient wants to take the money, uh, generally speaking, he or she has to sign a release of claims. And because of that, typically plaintiff's attorneys are welcomed into the process. The piece that you published recently with with co-authors in health affairs looked to questions as to adherence by systems to these kinds of programs um, and whether they had any cost implications. Can you sort of summarize your general findings on, on those two points? Right. So the, the question with regard to these programs is how, as is commonly asserted, could they possibly save money if they're doing what they're supposed to 
to be doing, which involves offering compensation for a much broader set of events than would ever successfully find their way into the tort system. That's a premise that I've questioned, uh, you know, as far back as 10 years ago, just because if you understand something about the epidemiology of medical injury and malpractice claiming, you know that most instances of injury go unredressed and indeed unnoticed. So there's this huge reservoir out there of unlitigated negligence that these programs claim to be tackling. And many commentators, I think most recently and forcefully Kathy Zeiler, have just questioned how can how can the numbers possibly add up. So that was one of the motivators for the, the study that uh, we did this past year of these programs at six hospitals in Massachusetts. What we found was pretty heartening, um, which was that there was quite good fidelity to the protocol for CRPs. There were, you know, for example, they were not cherry picking cases. They were not glossing over instances where compensation should have been offered with lots of excuses. Um, And nevertheless, the program did not end up costing a lot of money in in, uh, compensation costs to patients. And the reason is that with the rules that this program adopted, it was actually quite rare for a program for an event to be eligible for compensation. The predominant reason for that is something that has been confirmed in many other studies of medical injury, which is that three quarters of medical injuries are not due to negligence. They're they're just not. Um, And then beyond that, about a third of the ones that are aren't causally related to medical care. So there can be negligence in a patient's care that doesn't actually cause their injury. Um, And then uh, most of these programs, including the one we study in Massachusetts, impose a sort of severity threshold. They don't compensate every trivial harm. Um, In this program, you had to have what they call a temporary severe harm or greater. So that means you had to be hurt in a way that required at least three outpatient contacts with the hospital or or an initial or a prolonged hospitalization. And that um, also sort of calls out almost half of the remaining events. So once you apply this criteria, only about 9% of the events meet the compensation criteria. And it turns out that um, they can be resolved at, at very moderate cost. Now, you noted in the piece that Massachusetts has both an apology statute and a cooling off period uh, provision. Um, The former isn't uh, particularly extraordinary, the apology statute, although Massachusetts is quite broad because it also excludes um, admissions of error or mistake. But the cooling off period is still a relatively rare um, animal out there. And I, I know you didn't test for these variables because this was a Massachusetts only study. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but do you have any, any information? Is there any information out there? Do you have any uh, uh, sense as to the importance of um, CRP programs being accompanied by these legal pieces? Yeah, we did an earlier study where we looked at several of the institutions that had pioneered this approach. And one of them is, is here at my home institution at Stanford. Um, and they really felt that our cooling off law had been extremely helpful in giving them the space that they need to get in early with patients and negotiate a resolution. Um, you know, again, we don't have systematic evidence of any type of correlation with outcomes, but everybody who works in this space says this is really helpful. You know, as an attorney, one might be concerned that this is just delaying justice for patients. Mm-hmm. And I think that is that is a real concern. The question is, what do people do with that time? If they do nothing with that time, 
accept, you know, marshal the troops internally and get ready to fight. It is an empty gesture that is just setting back the cause of, of fair competition in healthcare. But if they do what these places with good CRPs do, which is really make outreach to the patient and their attorney, um, bring them in, um, bring them into the hospitals thinking about the event and um, do what they can to try to negotiate a settlement, I think it's very helpful. And it was notable to me that in our study, actually, a number of events came to the hospital's attention through that process. They were events that actually were not on the hospital's radar screen at all. You know, for example, a patient would leave the hospital, they develop an infection after discharge, and they go see somebody else for the infection. It was never reported in the hospital. They never really had an opportunity to intervene. And it's not until they get this notice from the attorney, you know, three or four or five months later, that this is even something that they begin working on. Uh, so in those situations, especially, it's very helpful uh, to have a little bit of lead time before you head to court. How do the programs deal or at least attempt to deal with, I don't know, the traditional expectations of, I was going to say, the other professionals, but I, I suppose I could get away with rent seekers. I mean, uh, the, the attorneys for insurers, the attorneys for plaintiffs have have financial stakes in litigation yeah and uh, the possibility uh, of of a of a large jury award so I, I would be interested to know what what we know if anything about the attitude of of those stakeholders mm -hmm. in this it's a great question and it has I think a surprising answer when when we were thinking about launching this initiative in Massachusetts one of the things we did preliminary to that was a, a study of stakeholder groups views of this idea and what they perceived as the obstacles and pros and cons to be. And we kind of expected that the biggest pushback would be from plaintiff's attorneys, and we were wrong. The surprise was that the biggest pushback was from defense attorneys, who, just as you say, um, have very little to gain and lots of fees to lose from expedited settlement processes. This isn't such a concern when a hospital has its risk management capacity completely internalized, but it is a concern for the, I think, the modal hospital that outsources a lot of this work to uh, local defense firms. Um, they, they really have no reason to get on board with this idea. They have no skin in the game. Um, and that's maybe one reason why we've seen it more at institutions where they have a captive insurer and they handle most of their work in-house. Yeah. Yeah. Again, so, and again, probably that's a, another area where provider scale right. creates great advantages yes. for, for so many things in our, in our system insofar as we believe it's a system. Where or when does the insurer get involved? I wasn't quite sure how mm -hmm. that worked is this is it during the protocol running or is it after yeah it's part of the protocol but to my knowledge all of the places that have done this maybe save one exception have had an initial layer review at the hospital level and then um, referred some cases on to the insurer and I actually think that approach makes a lot of sense because one of my observations from studying these programs in a number of settings is that the folks with the best in incentives to do the right things for patients are the ones who have to see the patient. So if you have boots on the ground in the hospital and you're at the bedside, I just think it's, it is very difficult for those folks to turn the other cheek when somebody is injured and not do right by them. Uh, so what happens typically is that those folks, um, they see the team, 
they see the patient, they make an initial evaluation and investigation. And then if they think, you know, this is a case that possibly meets our compensation criteria, then they will refer it to the insurer for a second review that takes into account what has come before, but also brings fresh eyes to the process. The median payments in the the cases that you looked in the Massachusetts study uh, was modest. I mean, Mm $75,000. Do you think the extreme cases will tend to get booted out? So, I mean, if you had a, you know, a, a, a child or a baby with a catastrophic injury, yeah. how, how do those stay in the system or do they tend to get boot, to boot out? I think they're likely to stay in the system if anybody has a sense that they probably owe money on that case, because every incentive is then to manage the cost of the payment that you know you're eventually going to have to make. As in every other aspect of our system, it's when liability is in dispute that the dispute itself becomes more and more protracted. You know, within the litigation system, it's those cases that are more likely to go to trial than to settle early. And when we add this earlier layer of dispute resolution, I think the same dynamic persists. When the stakes are high and the parties don't agree about liability, it's going to be harder to reach an early resolution. But I have seen several cases in several different facilities where they just had a terrible outcome. It was a, a, you know, they knew it was going to be expensive. It was a baby, so talking lifelong care. Um, But what those patients have going for them is is sort of the PR value of the case. And that's what forces settlements in those types of cases generally. And that's what forces settlements earlier when you have these additional programs involved. They don't don't want people hearing about this stuff. They want to take care of it. One of the things that you were looking for in this uh, study was to get a sense of what clinicians knew about these programs and the extent to which they were supportive. And uh, I actually found what I would characterize as a relative lack of familiarity that you reported Mm -hmm. somewhat surprising because apology statutes and the discussions around them are certainly not new. And we've had the TJC requirement of post-adverse event disclosure longer than it's been called TJC. Yeah, I mean, I think people are aware of disclosure requirements. The challenge was in, in, I think, the branding and marketing of the program as a distinct entity. These hospitals really worked their keisters off doing outreach when this program was launched. They had brochures, they had buttons, they had Grand Brown sessions, they visited department meetings, they talked to the chairs, all of this stuff. But the reality of the work of a hospital physician is that there is a cavalcade of information every day that has to be processed, and it doesn't become salient to you until it is salient to you. And so my my sense is that you have to do some of this type of outreach, but really what's going to be important to making physicians aware of this program is having a protocol in place that reminds them at the time an adverse event happens to them, this is available to you. This is the team that you call. Just like they know who to call in the event of a code, there are you know, they all need to know what the phone number is to call the CRP in the event of an adverse event. Well, just in the, the couple of uh, minutes that we've we've got left, you have a companion piece, which just came out in JAMA Internal Medicine, that looks at these programs from the perspective of patients and their experiences. And I wondered if you could give us a, a, a quick rundown of, of what you think were the, the major bullet points from that study. Sure. So we talked to patients and family members and a few folks who were experienced in dealing with them, either as plaintiff attorneys or uh, patient advocates or whatever. Um, We talked to them in two hospitals here in the United States that had uh, CRPs of varying tenures. And uh, what we found is that a little over half of them overall were satisfied with their experience in these 
programs, and there were some distinct triggers for both satisfaction and dissatisfaction that I think point the way for, you know, CRPs 2.0, which would be programs that are actually informed by evidence about what patients want and need, as opposed to the first generation that I think were largely driven by best guesses about what was going to be good for patients, but also what's going to be saleable to the institution and good for clinicians. Um, some of the things we learned from talking to patients were, you know, they have sort of high face validity. They're not that surprising, but they're also not predominant practice. Um, for example, disclosure training often centers on the kinds of information that you should convey to the patient. Um, but really what patients were telling us were, was most important to them was just having somebody listen. They needed to feel heard, which for them meant shut up. You need to listen attentively. You need to put mm-hmm. your pen down. Don't take notes and don't ask me to confine my narrative to to clinically relevant information because I need you to hear how this event affected me. And of course, those of us who study restorative justice, this is not new information. This is what aggrieved people generally need to do to, you know, to confront the wrongdoer, to have that narrative um, heard, and, and to feel uh, like they, the, the wrongdoer has an internalized this impact. Um, there are some other things as well that were more surprising. For example, everybody, and that includes um, people within hospitals really felt that plaintiff's attorneys added a lot of value to this process, that the right kind of plaintiff's attorney um, was helpful in serving as a second outlet for the patient's emotions and and this need to be heard, um, and to helping the patient understand their own hopes and expectations for the process. And finally, for managing the patient's expectations about the financial value of their injury, uh, which are often outsized. And that was The Week in Health Law. A big thank you to Professor Mello for joining us. You can find her on Twitter at Michelle M underscore Mello. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Michelle. Uh, a great uh, a pleasure to hear your voice and always fascinated by the, uh, the cutting edge stuff that you're involved in. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. We post our show notes at twill.com. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week.